go! And we are, and we are underway. The 2020 men's division of the Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest. It's been, it's been something else to get this off the ground, and I hope that uh, MLE's been able to help our peers across the sports vertical, MLB, NFL, show them the way that you can have live sports here, and we all got to figure it out. So there you go. <laughs> Did you just compare your MLE. contest to the NBA and the NFL? MLE, Major League Eating. <laughs> With a dead serious straight face. They compared the MLE to the MLB. So That's ma- beautiful. Major League Baseball starts here in a couple of weeks. So does the NBA, right? Again, sir, I must quibble with your verbiage. They're scheduled to start. You have seven NBA teams shutting down their training camps because too many people are getting the vid. And they're like, All right, yeah, yeah, we're just going to quit practicing. We'll just go to Orlando. Hoping... But, you know, they're not going to carry it with them, or Mickey doesn't have the vid or whatever. And, and I just, I, I still, I still have my doubts, especially because a lot of the stars in the league are saying, I'm not playing. I'm not playing in your phony asterisk season and risk subjecting me and, uh, and mine to the commie bat virus. And then where's Major League Baseball? Uh, roughly the same spot. They've, they're trying to get going. Teams held workouts. Uh, they were tossing the ball around, a little BP, a little bingo, a little, uh, little pepper. Hey, saw, better, better. Saw Mike Trout running the bases with a mask on. Oh, oh boy. really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Or was it a Trout mask replica? That is an incredibly obscure musical note. Those of you who got it, I tip my cap to you. They're not going to have to wear masks to play this season, though. That's just for practice? I think they would play wear masks during the game. No, no, he's been somewhat think. vocal about. Hey, I'm I'm concerned about this stuff. So I think he okay. was kind of making a bit of a, oh, a okay. display about okay, it. Okay, gotcha. Boy, if you're wearing a mask, I mean, you could shout horrible things at the umps, and they wouldn't be entirely sure who said them. <laughs> well, it's nobody in the stands because there's nobody in the stands, right? So they'd hear it. Okay, and then so we don't even know if the NFL is going to start up, right? No, again, they have a plan, and I'm rooting for them. I just I have some serious doubts because the players aren't going to risk, you know, getting the vid. They don't want to, except you know you're you're hanging on guys, your minimum salary guys, your kids who are trying to make it in the league who'll do anything. Uh, but your stars are not interested in in getting the vid. Uh, coming up, uh, the the dog stuff really interesting. How dogs actually age. If you're a fan of dogs, you're going to enjoy it. Uh, if you're a fan of science, you'll enjoy it. The rest of I don't know. You're going to hate it. Uh, also, Matt Taibbi is back. Oh, yeah. Liberal, liberal. Matt Taibbi is back, utterly blasting the ridiculous book, White Fragility. Yeah, that's some good stuff. That has been so embraced it's by... Number, it's the number one book in the country. Yeah, it's it's a pile of crap. And quite possibly going to be taught in your kid's school this fall. Uh-huh. If there is school. One more reason to put your kids in private school. Sell a kidney to China if you have to. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, the, the horrific book, uh, White Fragility, which is being cited all over um, by by those who would try to convince you this is not a great country or that everything's about race, which is an evil and, and you know, well, racist way to look at the world. So we need to get to that. Well, Colin Kaepernick tweeted, uh, speaking of the NFL over the weekend, that he would not participate in the 4th of July, which is a white supremacist holiday. Okay. So you're not playing in the NFL. <laughs> I wouldn't hire you. No. Why would I want to bring that to my organization and have to deal with it? Right. 
a white supremacist holiday. Maybe you admire the fact that he is sticking with his, you know, version of the world. And, you know, when it was everything was pointing toward him playing this year. Yes. Yep. And he decided to say the 4th of July is a not just, you know, not just some of the we didn't live up to our promise founding not not even just some of that. No, it's a white supremacist holiday. Well, he's bought the lie of the 1619 project and the critical race theory people and and this idiotic white fragility book. He's bought those lies. Uh, you know, I do admire his commitment. On the other hand, you know, if there's some guy in my house trying to kill me with a chainsaw and I shoot him a couple of times and throw boiling coffee in his face or whatever, and he keeps coming at me with the chainsaw, it's a little hard to just admire his stick to I mean, he's so wrong-headed. I mean, I, I admire his, uh, his willingness to throw his career away. I guess it shows a, a, a real commitment, but a real commitment to being wrong. So, anyway, good luck. One of the, the most shocking examples of, of just ridiculous media lockstep and bias has to be the coverage of the president's speech at Mount Rushmore. Oh, my God. Just astonishing. <clears throat> uh, and and uh, Drew Holden did a great job on Twitter of comparing the media coverage of the speech with the reality of it. For instance, you got Brian Stelter, who's the utterly insufferable eunuch on CNN, who's their alleged media critic, but he's just a, a, a shouter for the uh, the Democratic Party, talking about the dark and divisive speech. Well, yeah, the New York Times headline was, Trump uses Mount Rushmore speech to deliver divisive culture war message. Right. How about this uh, headline in the Washington Post? At Mount Rushmore, Trump exploits social divisions, warns of left-wing cultural revolution in dark speech. Ahead of Independence Day. I had a friend who was there. Oh, really? He didn't feel like it was dark. No. No. Okay, so here's your Washington Post dark speech. Uh, the president said, We gather tonight to herald the most important day in the history of nations, July 4th, 1776. At those words, every American heart should swell with pride, every American family should cheer with delight, and every American patriot should be filled with joy because each of you lives in the most magnificent country in the history of the world. And it will soon be greater than ever before. That's your dark, divisive speech. Uh, How about this? ABC News, President Trump pushes racial division uh, at the foot of Mount Rushmore. Well, uh, did you read the article in the New York Times? Uh, Part of it. The the headline, and I hadn't heard any of the speech at the time, you know, the headline saying it was a dark, divisive speech. I thought, okay, so now you've put that thought in my head. Before I even get to the speech, so I've mm-hmm. got to, you know, try to fight against that. Most people won't even catch on to the fact that they've already been pushed a certain direction. As Britt Hume tweeted over the weekend, he said, So glad the Times does not permit opinion on its news pages. The headline doesn't even begin to reflect the bias in the story. You get into the story in like the first paragraph, it said, and this is a news story. This is news coverage in what in theory is the most important newspaper in the world, although I'm not sure that might be like being the smartest horse at this point. Well, it's committing suicide as well. Yeah. But in the, like in the first couple of paragraphs, the news story says Donald President Trump continued to attack the straw man of civil unrest. And I thought, OK, so you've just declared something that half or more of America thinks is a real issue right. is a straw man. 
Marxists marching in the street, tearing down statues, some of them but Confederate statues, some of them Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and Frederick Douglass, for the love of God. But th- th- this gets to how I, you know, the first thing I said today was, I honestly don't know how to do this job anymore because I don't know where to get information. If the New York Times coverage of a president's speech is going to call, call that a straw man argument... And use a headline like that. Right. Where do you go for info? I guess the only thing you could do is watch the speech, take in no news coverage, and make your own decision, which might be the smart way to do it. Yeah. Yep. Hey, play a clip 30 for us uh, there, Sean. This is CNN reporter. Reporter, not panelist. This is Layla Santiago at Mount Rushmore. Kicking off the Independence Day weekend, President Trump will be at uh, Mount Rushmore, where he'll be standing in front of a monument of two slave owners and on land wrestled away from Native Americans, told that uh, be focusing on the effort to, quote, tear down our country's history. Now, the, the punchline to this, and I wish I had it in front of me. I can't remember where I put it is uh, when Barack Obama went to speak at the foot of Mount Rushmore, there was nothing but praise uh, for the beautiful monument to our nation's founding and our history and blah, blah, blah. It's just hilarious. I mean, it would be hilarious if it weren't dangerous. And the president, for all of his flaws, uh, was trying to point out that a lot of these organizations are trying to harness your energy your energy for, for racial justice, for justice in general. Um, they're trying to harness that energy in service of a Marxist goal of tearing down Western civilization and rebuilding it as, as a, a communist Marxist uh, system. And that is absolutely, they, uh, they are open about it. But few of you know this because the media won't tell you that because they're either a terrified of dissenting or b they're on board, and and so it's just it's so incredibly dishonest. The president was saying there are people trying to tear this country down. Ask the people in the street; you'll get a fair number who say, "No, no, I don't want to tear the country down. I want to, you know, I just want the racial justice." But you will have a hell of a lot who say, "Yes, we need to tear down this white supremacist nation." So, you know, for the umpteenth time, Trump didn't bring division. Division brought Trump. His speech was fine. Um, Kind of fitting into a lot of this, a former police commissioner in New York saying the city is completely out of hand with the number of shootings and uh, and the crime rate just skyrocketing since they backed off on policing. And we've got uh, some police mocking that whole thing. That we'll get to uh, coming up in a little bit. Yeah, we need to do that. We need to get to Matt Taibbi. Can't uh, wait. Bloodbath in Chicago. Yeah. Oh, my God. A little kid gunned down in Atlanta. And the the black Democrat mayor of Atlanta just gave the, the, the city the rough side of her tongue. Said, look, if black lives matter, act like it. That's pretty good. I mean, if any white person had said that, they'd be out of their job. But she was pissed. Beautiful little child gunned down. Anyway. Uh, that and oh, I got to get to the dog thing. Everything's Absolutely. So serious. I've been waiting for the dog thing. Rover. I have, you know, how many dogs. I have four. I have four dogs. Oh my god! You're well. You're our spokesman for, I need, for dog. I love. need to know how old they are. You're a real dog lover. That among other things on oh. the way. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Another 
our New York Times example from the weekend where I just I don't know where to go to for news now. Their headline, their opinion page on the 4th of July. Throughout human history, three caste systems have stood out. India, Nazi Germany, and the United States. Oh, my God. Not really. Really? Nazi Germany. Honest oh. to God. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Wow. Wow. <laughs> I promise we'll get to this next segment. Matt Taibbi utterly murders the idiotic book, White Fragility. Which is the number one book in the country. And if you've been walking around desperately seeking approval by saying that you've read it and you've learned from it, well, you're a fool, but we've all been a fool uh, at times in our lives. Noted right-winger Matt Taibbi, yeah. Right, Uh, (laughs) and and we'll explain that to you. Um, But you need to stop saying it. So... Anybody with a lick of common sense, I think, has figured out that the whole dog years equals seven years of uh, one human year. You know, blah, blah, blah. Just because, you know, at age one, roughly, your dog appears to be an adult. So, I mean, obviously, that's more like, you know, 17 or 18 to one. But um, new research has um, has been looking at this. Uh, it has to do with your genes and how they change. It's uh, methyl groups, they're called. By mapping these, scientists can tell the age of an organism. Researchers from the University of California San Diego School of Medicine, shout out to the good folks, used blood samples from 105 Labrador retrievers to accurately work out how quickly the breed ages. Now, obviously, there's variation in breeds of dogs, but the lab extremely popular and, uh, and, and a fairly typical doggy lifespan. Especially when dogs are young, they age very rapidly compared to humans. A one-year-old dog is similar to a 30-year-old human. A four-year-old dog is similar to a 52-year-old human. I don't buy that. I don't buy a one-year-old dog as a 30-year-old human. They're not, they're not as, uh, they, they don't have the impulse control of a 30 year old. <laughs> I, I'd say a one year old dog might be like a no, 16 year old. It's, it's purely a physical question. They don't address the dog's quote unquote maturity like, Emotional maturity. Yeah, but I didn't have the energy at 30. I mean, it'd make more sense if you're saying like a 20-year-old. You're just like running around all crazy and ready to go. All right. Uh, Number one, okay, you're you're misunderstanding what we're talking about. It's the the period from birth to death and where you are on it, not whether you're bouncy or not, okay? Okay. It's it's just just this question of age as opposed to... How you show your age. Okay. Because dogs are very different beasts than human beings. They are? What? Yes, I know. Go on with this part. So... How dogs are different than humans. Uh, <laughs> Expound on that. Let's start with the tail. <laughs> <laughs> the lack of thumbs. Ability to uh, lick themselves. You can tell them to speak, but all they do is woof. A one-year-old dog, a four-year-old dog similar to a 52-year-old. Then by seven years old, dog aging slows a great deal. And they kind of exist um, as a sixty to seven year old for sixty to seventy year old for a very long time. They that, just stop aging. That appears to be true. Yeah. Oh, you've conceded that much to science. Twelve year old dog well, typically they, they, about wait seven a second, years. Wait a second. They had been telling me science was it seven years for a year for my whole life. No, so, I don't think science told you that. You they, don't think just, so? That's what people said. You don't think that was? I thought that was science. No, they I've were heard, claiming that forever. Well. I don't know. I don't know what your experience is. Uh, bah, 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 bah. After This makes sense when you think about it, right? Senior author Dr. Trey Idiker 
Uh, after all, a nine-month-old dog can have puppies. Uh, I did not know that. Yes. The formula provides a new epigenetic clock, a method for determining the age of cell, tissue, or organism based on a readout of its epigenetics, chemical modifications uh, on its on its genetics, et cetera, et cetera. So they age super fast, but then they slow down a lot. I got four dogs, one with a lifespan that's like seven years, and one mm. that's a lifespan that's like 12 years. So they're very uh, different to beasts just within themselves. Right. Clearly. So Matt Taibbi, who's part of that vanguard of like old school liberals, what would you call them? You're Bill Maher, and you mentioned Sam Harris, whose podcast is really good. Um, Traditional liberals? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Who are absolutely militant against the new radical types and and are eloquently undressing them and and beating them down in their idiotic damaging divisive ideology i'm not sure anybody's hearing it uh, but matt taibbi's piece on the white fragility book is just great yeah you so. should hear about it. if you haven't heard about the book it's the number one book in the country and uh it gets a it gets a he was on with the jimmy fallon on the tonight show the other night the author and fallon was gushing over him fawned over her. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, stay tuned for that. You're going to like it. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Just watching the story on the NBA and the Major League Baseball comeback. No way it's going to happen. Just no way. I don't. I don't. Just no way. I don't see how it works. Yeah. Too many um, people test positive and everybody will freak out. More on that later. Also, and we got impactful, important, country defining stuff to talk about. And we have somebody who quit donuts like me and whose doctor prescribed them aversion therapy. Oh, my. I think I know what that is. Tell you about that coming up. All right. One of the difficulties of talking about something Matt Taibbi has written is that he's such a good, solid writer, and there's so little fluff in what he writes, you don't know what to leave out. So he's got I'll, many thoughts in his head. I'll, I'll hit you with a, ch- a chunk of his, uh, his recent story on white fragility, in quotes. Um. Actually, one of the more amusing parts of this article, which I'm going to leave out, is he absolutely blasts the hell out of this woman, Robin D'Angelo, who wrote White Fragility. Well, he calls the book Horse S. It's the right. number one book in the country, and he yeah. calls it Horse S. <laughs> yep. Yep. So here's what Matt says in part. A core principle of the academic movement that shot through elite schools in America since the early 90s was the view that individual rights, humanism, and the democratic process are all just stalking horses for white supremacy. The concept, as articulated in books like former corporate consultant Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, reduces everything, even the smallest and most innocent human interactions, to racial power contests. I will depart from the text and tell you, I, I find this book one of the most loathsomely racist things I've ever seen. It's been mind-boggling, he writes, to watch White Fragility celebrated in recent weeks. Then he gives some examples, including Jimmy Fallon gushing. 
Um, White fragility has been pitched as an uncontroversial roadmap for fighting racism at a time when, after the murder of George Floyd, Americans are suddenly inappropriately interested in doing just that. Except this isn't a straightforward book about examining one's prejudices. Have the people hyping this impressively crazy book actually read it? Impressively crazy. D'Angelo isn't the first person to make a buck pushing tricked-up pseudo-intellectual horse ass as corporate wisdom. But she might be the first to do it selling Hitlerian race theory, as in Adolf Hitler. White fragility has a simple message. There's no such thing as universal human experience, and we are defined not by our individual personalities or moral choices, but only by our racial category, which is why I think this is one of the most aggressively racist things ever published. If your category is white, bad news. You have no identity apart from your participation in white supremacy. Here's a quote. Anti-blackness is foundational to our very identities. Whiteness has always been predicated on blackness, which naturally means a positive white identity is an impossible goal. That's a quote from the book. Imagine explaining that to the Vikings, you know, and not the Minnesota Vikings, but Vikings in the year 632. You realize your whiteness is defined entirely by blackness. They'd be be like, there are are dark-colored people? What? They wouldn't have any idea, but no, they had no idea. Imagine teaching it to your kids today. You envision Vikings much more willing to engage in debate than I do. (laughs) That's a good point. Uh, Let's see. D'Angelo instructs us that there's nothing to be done here except, quote, strive to be less white. To deny this theory or to have the effrontery to sneak away from the tedium of D'Angelo's lecturing, what she describes as leaving the stress-inducing situation, is to affirm her concept of white supremacy. This intellectual equivalent of the ordeal by water, if you float, you're a witch, is orthodoxy across much of academia, which is scary. Our God, our universities are so perverse right now. Oh, my God. Right. It's the idea that if people launch into this horse S, as he rightly called it, and you just roll your eyes and whatever and walk away, that's proof that you're a white supremacist. Right. Right. D'Angelo's writing style... If you engage and argue with it, of right. course that's proof you're a racist. So it's yeah. the whole, if you float, you're a witch. If you drown, well, you're drowned. Right. D'Angelo's writing style is pure pain. The lexicon favored by intersectional theorists of this type is built around the same principle as George Orwell's Newspeak. It banishes ambiguity, nuance, and feeling, and structures itself around sterile word pairs like racist and anti-racist. Platform and deplatform, center and silence, that reduce all thinking to a series of binary choices. Uh, oh, sorry. Pages stuck together. I licked my finger. Probably get the vid now. Writers like D'Angelo like to make ugly verbs out of ugly nouns and ugly nouns out of ugly verbs. There are countless permutations on centering and privileging alone. In a world where only a few ideas are considered important, redundancy is encouraged. For example... To be less white is to break with white silence and white solidarity, to stop privileging the comfort of white people. Or Ruth Frankenberg, a premier white scholar in the field of whiteness, describes whiteness as multidimensional. And then he, uh, well, he talks more about her horrific writing style. But then uh, one key part of the book is where she addresses Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. One line of King's speech in particular, that day he might 
uh, that one day he might be judged by the content of his character and not the color of his skin. It was actually his children he was talking about, but anyway. Was seized upon by the white public because the words were seen to provide a simple and immediate solution to racial tensions. Pretend we don't see race and racism will end. Colorblindness was now promoted as the remedy for racism, with white people insisting they didn't see race or if they did, it had no meaning to them. That this speech, this is Taibbi now, that this speech was held up as the framework for American race relations for more than half a century precisely because people of all races understood King to be referring to the difficult and beautiful long-term goal is discounted, of course. White fragility is based on the idea that human beings are incapable of judging each other by the content of their character, and if people of different races think they're getting along or even loving one another, they probably need immediate anti-racist training. This is an important passage because rejection of King's dream of racial harmony uh, has become a central tenet of this brand of anti-racist doctrine mainstream press outlets are rushing to embrace. Yeah, I love that angle of it. I uh, I was wondering over the weekend, because I heard another uh, thinker, this happens to be a right-winger, but a similar idea, that uh, the I Have a Dream speech was about how America has not lived up to its promise. You you know, you wrote a promissory note, and then you, you've, you know, uh, defaulted on it. Right. To, for black Americas. For black America. Well, the new belief is, no, America didn't have a promise that it didn't live up to. It was always racist from the beginning. The the, the foundation is racism. Mm -hmm. So the purpose is racism. Right. So they're rejecting Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr.'s entire premise. I wonder at what point I really believe in the next couple of years, we'll start to see MLK statues come down. Wow. Wow. That he will no longer be seen as somebody you can tolerate. Yeah. Because his his view is not, well, as you, you just read there, his view does not match with the modern thinking of the most popular book in the country. Right. Right. Well, and it is notable that liberals like Matt Taibbi and James Lindsay, the professor from Portland State, and then Bill Maher and, and, and the whole list of them are terrified by these new theories because they know they will lead inevitably toward more racism, not less. More hatred, not less. More discrimination, not less. It's it's absolute poison. And you people, you poor, overeducated, white guilters are drinking the poison. You're going to be part of the, the cause of terrible things in the future. Just one more note uh, to illustrate how stupid this book is and how badly written it is. This is back to Matt Taibbi, and we will post this piece at armstrongandgetty.com. We're working on it right now. The most amazing, the book's most amazing passage concerns the story of Jackie Robinson, quoting from the book, uh, White Fragility. The story of Jackie Robinson is a classic example of how whiteness obscures racism by rendering whites, white privilege, and racist institutions invisible. Robinson is often celebrated as the first African-American to break the color line. While Robinson was certainly an amazing baseball player, this storyline depicts him as racially special, a black man who broke the color line himself. The subtext is that Robinson finally had what it took to play with whites, as if no black athlete before him was strong enough to compete at that level. Imagine if instead the story went something like this. Jackie Robinson, the first black man whites allowed to play Major League Baseball. Well, you know, I could refute it, but uh, Taibbi has won awards, so I'll just read it. (laughs) There is not a single baseball fan anywhere, literally not one, except perhaps Robin D'Angelo, I guess, who believes Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier because he, quote, finally had what it took to play with whites. 
everyone familiar with this story understands that Robinson had to be exceptional both as a player and as a human being, to confront the racist institution known as Major League Baseball. His story has always been understood as a complex, long-developing political tale about overcoming violent, systemic oppression. For D'Angelo to suggest history should recast Robinson as the first black man whites allowed to play Major League Baseball is grotesque and profoundly belittling. Robinson's story, moreover, did not render whites, white privilege, and racist institutions invisible. It did the opposite. Robinson uncovered a generation of job inflation for mediocrity, white ballplayers. Well, that's kind of a distraction for baseball fans. But the point is, freaking nobody read that situation like Robin D'Angelo says everybody read it. Nobody. This book is phony. It's poison. It's garbage. So he he goes on in that article to get into the times that we're living in now, cancel culture and all that. People everywhere today are being encouraged to snitch out schoolmates, parents, and colleagues for thought crime. The New York Times wrote a salutary piece about high schoolers scanning social media accounts of peers for evidence of anti-black racism to make public. Because what can go wrong with encouraging teenagers to start submarining each other's careers before they've even finished growing? Wow. There's a movement among high school kids, and the New York Times thought it was fantastic. Go through your, 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 the other people in your class's social media accounts. Find the racism. Bring it forward so that they can be punished for it. And they quoted one kid uh, saying, I can't imagine, you know, somebody saying this, and they go on to be a lawyer someday. Yeah. Well, and what's incredibly dangerous, and you all know this, right, is that they brand everything racism. The word racism has now been twisted to mean, or racist has been twisted to mean, anybody who opposes us. So if racism is everything, racism is nothing. So they've, they've absolutely enabled real racists. I've got a, couple, lunatics. got a couple of more great examples of the whole cancel culture thing, destroying businesses and lives that Matt Taibbi pointed out Do in it. his piece that are really good. And donut aversion therapy, oh. which I might try myself. Ah, All on the way on the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. I promise I'll get to the donut aversion therapy because I declared my independence from donuts on the 4th of July. Uh, I took a stand. I took an oath. Didn't Satan try to stop Homer Simpson from eating donuts at one point? that's right. By feeding them to him until he was uh, dead, but Homer just kept eating them. Yeah. We watched a couple episodes of The Simpsons yesterday. My kids really like it. We're way at the the beginning, the early seasons, mm. when Homer was still just kind of nice and lovable. Um, uh, a little more on this book, White Fragility, first, though. Uh, number one book in the country. Matt Taibbi took it on. A few thoughts on America's smash hit, number one guide to egghead racialism. A couple of things I wanted to point out. Um, from his article, parents calling out their kids is in vogue right now. In Slate... Making a mountain out of a molehill, wrote to advice columnist Michelle Herman in a letter headlined, I think I've screwed up the way my kids think about race. So you write to an advice columnist. The problem, the aggrieved parent noted, was that his slash her sons had gone to a diverse school 
And their closest friends are a mix of black, Hispanic, and white kids, which to them was natural. Mm-hmm. The parent worried when one son was asked to fill out an application for a potential college roommate and expressed annoyance at having to specify race because he said, I don't care about race. So you're asked by the college what race roommate you'd like? Yes. All right. That seems crazy to me well, anyway. what race you are because uh, the races must be kept separate. But her son said, I don't care about race. Clearly a situation needing fixing, Matt Tybee wrote. The parent asked if someone who didn't care about race was just as racist as someone who only has white friends and asked if it was too late to do anything. No fear, the advice columnist wrote. It's never too late for kids like yours to educate themselves. To help, she linked to a program of materials designed to, for that purpose, a lesson plan for being an ally that included a month of readings, including White Fragility, the book Taibi calls Horse S. Right. Hopefully that kid with black and Hispanic friends can be cured, he says. <laughs> I mean, how well crazy said. is that? Well said. How crazy is that? Right. Your son has friends of all different races, and you... Think there's a problem, right? He's got to be cured of that. That has to be fixed somehow. In the name of anti-racism, at a time of catastrophe and national despair, when conservative nationalism on the rise and violent confrontation on the streets is becoming commonplace, I don't agree with all that. It's extremely suspicious that the books, politicians, the press, university administrators, and corporate consultants alike are asking us to read are urging us to put race even more at the center of our identities and fetishize the unbridgeable nature of our differences. Meanwhile, books like The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and To Kill a Mockingbird, which are both beautiful and actually anti-racist, have been banned because they contain the N-word. White Fragility contains the N-word, too, by the way. It's almost like someone thinks there's a benefit to keeping people divided, Matt Tybee writes. Well said. Well said. I almost wish that were the goal, to keep us divided. I think they actually believe this crap is the problem. Yeah, and there are a lot of people who think if I'm going to be a nice person, not a racist, because I don't want to be a racist, I need to go along with this. This is this is the way. This is for me. This is the way for me to prove I'm not a racist. And it's absolutely poison, as I said before. So it's I, going to accomplish the opposite of I that. I took in a ton of information about the French Revolution during our vacation. Books, uh, documentaries, that sort of stuff, and some parallels that I got to point out that are just really, really amazing. Uh, maybe I'll get to that next hour. Please. But back to my de- declaring independence from donuts. We got this text. So, Jack, if cold turkey on donuts doesn't work, so far I'm three days donut free. Mm. Which for me is amazing. <laughs> Every day is a victory. That statement mm. is amazing. <laughs> Here's a cure that worked 30 years, no relapse for my dad. My dad loved glazed donuts. He had to lose weight, so he enrolled in aversion therapy to kick his donut addiction. It was hugely successful, with only a few minor downsides. The therapist had my dad bring two dozen of his favorite donuts to the session. Once seated in the treatment room in front of a mirror, he was told to jam as many donuts as possible into his mouth and begin chewing without swallowing. Mm, Donuts. He was then instructed to spit out his donut cud, Play, play with it, oh. then put it back in his mouth. Oh, what? No, and, and, no. And continue chewing, spit it out, and then put it back in his mouth. Oh, gee, many. Do this over and over again. Throughout this dining experience, the therapist administers uh, administers small, steadily Clubbings. increasing... Okay, I didn't even read this far. Okay. Throughout the, the dining experience, the therapist administered small, steadily increasing electric shocks yes. at random intervals. <laughs> yes. In, Ow! In just... <laughs> 
In just one session, he was cured of his love of donuts. Yeah, and reduced to a quivering mess of anxiety. (laughs) He cried himself to sleep every night after that, but he was cured of his donut addiction. (laughs) What the hell? (laughs) Whenever he'd smell fresh baked bread, he'd poo himself. But it's back. It's back. It's all right, dear. It's all right, dear. You're not eating a donut. You'll be okay. Holy cow. God, they had to put him in a padded room, but he didn't eat any more donuts. That's amazing. Oh, boy. The aversion therapy. I, I've thought of that, you know, for various habits and tendencies. It just, if I don't know, it hit me really hard with a stick every time this happened. You know, it'd work after a while. Oh, I did a bang-bang on vacation. That's when you eat two meals back-to-back, two different meals back-to-back. And not like six hours apart. No, 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 back-to-back. Yeah. Just, yeah, like both as if you hadn't, you know, eaten. And did a bang-bang in San Diego Friday night. Pizza, then a steak restaurant. So a street pizza place, then a full-on, really nice steak restaurant. My son couldn't keep up. He liked the idea of it. Yeah. But he couldn't he couldn't hang. Well, he's only a child. (laughs) But I was feeling feeling pretty awful by the end of it. Big (sighs) giant ribeye, onion rings, and then a piece of key lime pie after eating at a pizza place. Full meal at the pizza place. And I told my son if I ever have this idea again to punch me in the throat. Wow. That's an odd relationship to have with your boy. What? Uh, who am I to, you know, stick my nose in? <laughs> uh, so I got some ideas on the French Revolution and how it fits in with today. We got to talk about fireworks gone wrong in a variety of places around the country. That happens, right? You lose a thumb, you lose an eye. It happens. Armstrong and Getty.